Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's Art Director. In our last episode, we featured an interview with HarperCollins Associate Editor, Rachel Camburi, who is currently on strike with the rest of the HarperCollins union workers from the New York City office. The interview was conducted by TW Managing Editor, Neva Taliadin, and our previous excerpt mostly focused on financial sustainability of working and publishing and the labor of love mindset of the well-paid people at the top of the industry. Today's episode dives into Rachel's personal backstory of starting out in publishing and more specific details of the strike, including the events leading up to it and the demands of the striking workers. As of this recording, the strike has been going on for 17 days with no response from the Harper management. Meanwhile, literary agents have begun to support the strike by suspending submissions to the publishing house until a resolution is reached, and HarperCollins has put out calls to gain more staffing in order to continue to function while its workforce is decimated. Please enjoy Neva's interview with Rachel. So, Rachel, take it away and tell us more about your role, current role, and um, maybe about a little bit about your novel as well. Thank you, Neva. Um, I'm so happy to be here. It's um, it's really a pleasure and a privilege, and I can't thank you enough for sort of giving myself and sort of the uh, the rest of the, you know, HarperCollins Union, which we'll get into later, um, sort of a, an opportunity to uh, to speak on our situation and to kind of highlight this part of the, the world of publishing, which is really the publishing side of things. Um, something that my colleagues and I discuss a lot, uh, you know, of the sort of younger set of employees in publishing is how frustrated we used to be and still are to an extent with the opacity of this industry in terms of how difficult it is to understand it, to even learn about it, how it works, how choices are made, why they're made the way that they are, uh, all these kinds of things that don't get discussed in any real public way. And so it leaves authors of all sorts, whether they've been published before or never before, or just starting their journey into the world of writing, you know, it leaves them in a state of severe disadvantage. And it's something that I firmly believe needs to be dispelled, which is, you know, to and which means providing, you know, coming onto podcasts like this and, you know, talking to your audience and basically saying like, there are people, you know, behind the curtain and they're not all bad. Like there, you know, there are some of us who really are trying to make this a more transparent and inclusive, you know, industry for both people on the publishing side and for the authors who want to be published. So this feels like a great opportunity to do that. And I really appreciate it. It's interesting, though, that because I think that when you talk about publishing, you think about there's this mystique surrounding Mm -hmm. it, Mm -hmm. like especially with the big five, right? Oh, yes. Oh, it's a dream, you know, every author's dream to get like a book deal with the big five. Um, and and I was wondering, like, as as a writer yourself, mm-hmm. like, how did you feel about publishing in general? Where you self-published your novel, for example, yeah. but you work for traditional publishing. So, like, um, how did that 
process come about? So, well, so one happened before the other. Um, so I have been writing, not necessarily a writer, but I have been writing since I was about five years old. Um, and I turned to studying World War II history when I was about 11. And around 14 or 15, I came up with an idea for a story. And that story became Gravel, which became my first World War II novel. And I self-published Gravel uh, in April of 2009. Uh, so I was not, I was 17. I hadn't even graduated high school yet. And self-publishing at that point was very, very like Stone Age, <laughs> still pretty. <laughs> I can imagine know, 2009. Yeah. I see, I see some of the books that get self-published now, and I'm so envious of like the quality <laughs> of like yes. of all of it, and just the fact that it's so much easier to make a book, like to self-publish a book now. However many years ago 2009 was, it was, it was so obnoxiously difficult to even just do it that way. Very proud that I did it. Uh, a lot of us, obviously, in this community and in this larger sort of ecosystem of book people, you know, we all come to books for certain reasons and get attached yeah. for our own reasons, that kind of thing. I know for me, it was very much born out of like childhood trauma. Like I need somewhere to escape to. And this is, you know, the early 90s. Yeah. Where else are you going to go? Yeah. Um, you know, and video games sometimes and other things sometimes. But books were really sort of that first thing that gave me gave me that escape and also mm -hmm. and not only provided escape but also provided education and provided uh lessons in just how to live a life and leadership and all these kinds of things and it was all novels it was all not it was all fiction uh but I got so much out of it and so it just it just made sense I was like New York mm -hmm. makes sense books make sense writing makes sense all of these things just like fit my sort of my wants and my needs in a, in that sense and so I went, to, came to New York in 2009, uh, geez, 13 years ago uh, for college. And I graduated in 2013 with a literary studies degree. And well before that, I would say certainly during my freshman year of college, even I was putting out applications to Penguin Random House, HarperCollins, Hachette. I kept sending out applications for internships and never hearing back. So I was like, what am I doing wrong? And it just became this sort of Sisyphean effort of just applying, applying and not hearing anything. But I was like, it's OK, it's going to come. I was like, yeah, I was I'm, I, you know, family and friends will tell you it's like I'm a very, very stubborn person, certainly to a fault. But in this instance, it was like, I know I'm in New York for a reason and it's not just to go to school you know, I graduated college and I was like, I could go, but I also can't really afford to go. I'm kind of stuck here financially, but I also don't want to leave. I don't feel like I have completed my journey, my New York story yes. yet. So, and I knew publishing was part of that. I knew being an editor was part of that. And because as much as writing has always been a thing for me, writing taught me how to edit. You know, they were part and parcel. The writing and the editing became very much sort of inseparable from each other in terms of what I love to do and what I'm good at. Mm -hmm. So I was, I had that conviction, you know, well before I graduated college, even of like, I'm going to work in publishing. Like, this is going to happen one way or the other. Uh, but I graduated and I just had to keep working. I couldn't afford, even if I had gotten 
interviews at an inter- for an internship, I couldn't have afforded to do it because none of them at that point, none of them were paying. Yeah, so, I was gonna say they're unpaid internships, right? And like that, thankfully, has for the most part changed. But I mm-hmm. am aware of a, a good handful still of either smaller houses or sort of publishing adjacent companies uh, that do not pay their interns. Um, and that is extremely unacceptable to me and very, very frustrating. Uh, so they are still out there, but thankfully that is something that has changed over the years. But, um, but yeah, I couldn't have afforded to do it. So I was working upwards of two, three, sometimes four jobs, odd jobs on top of each other for about three and a half years after I graduated college. And then I eventually got a job at a bookstore that thankfully, uh, put me in a position where I didn't even have to apply for internships anymore, working in a bookstore, And I found this out during my interviews that came mid 2016 uh, or spring 2016 was basically like working in a bookstore. And this is what editors were telling me was like, oh, you working in a bookstore is as valuable, if not more valuable than if you had all of the right internships, because Mm -hmm. anyone, you know, they were like, anyone can teach you or you can learn at any point how to do a mailing or write a write an editorial letter like these things can be taught. But learning on the learning on the front lines on the job. Yes, exactly. Like what is selling? What is languishing on the shelf? Mm -hmm. What can't stay on the shelves? What is selling, but maybe not sort of in all in one time, all in one burst? Like what's maybe sort of a slow and steady seller? Mm -hmm. What's a great backlist title that people keep coming to over and over again? Things like that. Like that's sort of those insights are it's like having front row seats to what publishers really care about. Bingo. That was in like January, February of 2016. I immediately started applying for editorial p- assistant positions across the industry, across all houses, university presses, wherever I could, wherever I could find a job listing, it, there, there the resume went. And I heard nothing for months. Uh, I heard nothing from when I started applying in February 2016 until mid-May. And then all of a sudden, I got three interviews in a week. I was like, okay. There must uh, be a season, too. There must there, exactly. be like hiring this was, seasons. This was my introduction to publishing seasons. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It was just like, there's a season for everything in publishing, literally. So I did the interviews. I you know, was being considered for this and for that. Um, I fell out of the running for one of the positions. I was fine with that. And then... Uh, I got an email direct. I had a, I had interviewed for a different position at a different imprint at Hachette. I don't remember what mm-hmm. the imprint was, but I I had interviewed. I talked to HR and everything, and I think they sent along my information to another publisher there named Sean Desmond, who emailed me directly and said, "I'm looking for a new editorial assistant for Twelve, the imprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be interested?" Lucky for Sean and lucky for me, I was well aware <laughs> of the 12 imprint because at, given my background in war and military history, I'm a huge fan of Sebastian Younger. And he his last couple books, with the exception of this latest one, were published by 12. 
And I said, I love 12. I would love to come interview. Like, let's do it. And had an interview, you know, the interview process, of course, in publishing can take anywhere from I've had it go take a week and I've had it take a month, you know, it depends. But uh, a month later, I started at 12 as the editorial assistant and I was there for five and a half years. Um, so I only just left in November of 2021 and I started HarperCollins. Wow. So, you know, it's a, as you said, it was, you went the long way around, but yes. once you were in, um, was the process um, moving from Hachette to HarperCollins like a seamless transition where you referred to HarperCollins? So uh, so what happened, the long, long and short of it is basically I, you know, I had sort of hit the growth ceiling at 12. It's a very, very small team and, you know, publishing budgets are tight, so they couldn't afford to promote me and hire a new assistant. So I was like, you know, it's time for me to you know, leave the nest, basically. Yeah. Well, that's like relative when we talk about budgets, right? Because they give some, you know, some authors like a million dollar advances. Those advances mean that somebody's getting paid less. Exactly. And usually it's the employees or the other authors that they squeeze out of uh, a deal that they deserve. So I I just wanted to put that perspective out there. It's not that they're going to close down tomorrow it's that they just don't want to allocate that resource to their workers absolutely no there's there's this almost sort of allergy towards you know putting putting money where it would actually not you know maybe not make the splashiest statement but would actually do the most good and that is not to say that i am the most good that you know that hachette ever had no <laughs> but it's to say that and you know we can get into this later but it's you know yes. it's to this larger point that like if you want good talent if you want a strong industry in publishing or otherwise you need to invest at the entry level period when I started at Hachette in 2000, July of 2016, and to be fair, like, to be clear, I was thrilled. I was so happy to get that job. Uh, I was reaching a crisis point of like, if I don't get any of these jobs that I just interviewed for, what am I going to do? Like, do I go to grad school? I don't know. So Sean really came in clutch and got me, you know, got me in for an interview. Yeah, we yeah. had a great interview. He was actually, he actually to harken back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of sort of the commitment, the dedication, the stubbornness of like, I'm going to work in publishing. (laughs) He asked me at my first interview, he goes, he was sort of looking at my resume and he goes, so you graduated in 2013 and you're from Oregon originally. And he goes, what are you still doing here? Right? Like most people would just go home or go somewhere else because they, you know, they finished college. And I looked at him in the eye and I said, I'm not leaving this city until I get my publishing job. Like I am determined to be an editor. Like this is, this is something that I was meant to do because I'm really good at it and I want to do it. I want to see if I'm cut out for it. And in so many words, and I don't know, I think that's, that seemed to do it. (laughs) You shot your shot. Exactly. I was like, that's it. Love it. So, so that sort of set the tone, but there was this element of uh, the salary. And at that point, um, I'd been making maybe $30,000 a year across three or four different jobs. And so 33000 a year for one job at that, at that exact moment in my life and, and in that state of desperation that I was in was like, 
sure, I'll take it. Like, I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. And also with this sort of ingrained mentality that I think a lot of us grew up with of if you just put in your, you know, put in a lot of hard work for like the first year or two, then they'll know that you're like committed and that you're going to be there for a while. And they'll, then they'll give you like the real money. Right. It's the very first thing that they lie to us about. Exactly. You have to deserve, deserve your paycheck, but you know, you deserve it many times over and you don't get it many times. You don't get it because it's um, really uh, on, you know, it's almost a value. It's almost a company value, like not to pay proper wages. Right. Or that or that negotiation isn't even it's it's unspoken that you do not negotiate your first salary in publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, yeah. I was told that. And then a few years in, I find out, oh, well, this guy guy yeah. managed to negotiate his entry level salary up by mm-hmm. like three thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So yeah. that's obviously not a hundred percent true. Yeah. There's and so that's you know, it's that kind of thing of like what is what works for one person doesn't work for everyone. And yeah. publishing has run on that logic or lack thereof for generations now, which is That's right. It, They're it just worked. I made yeah. it work, therefore so yeah. must you. I suffered, exactly. therefore so must you. Exactly. And there is nothing, frankly, more morally reprehensible to me than that. Because yeah. that year, 2018, which I'll get into in a second was a great example, a a recent example of like my ethos in action, which is like all these horrible things happened. Now I do not want anyone else to have to experience that. It does not make, it does not compute in my brain why other people would go through hell and then turn around and say, now, now it's your turn. Like, I don't, I don't ascribe to that. It's not logical. It's not logical. It is, it's pure feeling. And what the feeling is, is resentment and grudge and just nothing good. So in 2018, at this point, I'm two years into my career. I'm still an editorial assistant. And first it's my, first my stepmom gets diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer at the end of 2017. Um, and that's bad enough. And then February rolls around and my grandfather, who I'm, who I was very, very close to, I'm currently wearing, if you can hear the jangling in the background, I'm I'm wearing his dog tag. Um, Arthur, uh, Cambry was a wonderful man and a wonderful grandfather. And he was the only grandfather I knew. Um, and I loved him dearly. And he died, uh, the day after Valentine's day in 2018, but in the days leading up to his death, I was in a panic because I was like, I can't afford to fly out to say goodbye to this man who mm-hmm. I love so dearly and means so much to me. And that was such a depressing realization. And I tweeted about it and I just, you know, I, I angst online. That's just, yeah, it's just yeah. what I've been doing since I was a teenager. It's uh, a mark of a generation. Exactly. It's just like, where, what am I going to do? I'm going to post about it. Yeah. So, but I, I fired off a very, you know, morbid, morose tweet about it. And as re- and in response to that, this wonderful community of which I am sort of uh, adjacent to in terms of my being a civilian, but I'm very much, you know, close friends with a lot of these people. But uh, a t- like, I think over a hundred military veterans across generations, across political lines, across so many things, out of nowhere, one person kicked it off and said, hey, guys, can like can the veterans community 
get Rachel to go see her grandfather. My you know, goodness. Who was an who was an army veteran? Yeah. Um, you know, can we get Rachel to Ohio to go say goodbye to her grandfather? Um, they crowdfunded a ticket for me essentially overnight. Uh, unfortunately, it was just enough too late. The money wasn't too late, but the timing was. And he died That's before right. I could uh, say goodbye and go out and see him. Mm-hmm. But I did get to go to the funeral and I did yeah. get to, you know, help where I could if people, you know, yeah. needed help with anything financially. And just an, also like, you know, to pay my rent, you know, and like yeah. help, help with other costs that are incurred when you are dealing with people dying. and that was huge that was the most meaningful thing anyone had done for me in a very long time having to go home to Oregon for six weeks uh, right after my starting right after my birthday uh, in June to go take care of my stepmom as she dies Mm -hmm. uh, of pancreatic cancer in hospice. That process took six weeks. The $10,000 that I got from my grandfather uh, like lasted me through that, thankfully. And it's what got me through that financially because my paycheck sure didn't. Um, yeah. my paycheck did not pay for the ticket home, like the emergency ticket home, you know, after my sister texted me saying, you know, she's in the hospital, my yeah. paycheck didn't pay for anything except a meal here and there and f- for rent back in New York. After my stepmom died, I came back to New York to this awful apartment that I was living in. And to the people listening to this, I cannot exaggerate how bad this apartment was. I really can't. Uh, but it was the only place I could afford. And I came home to that, or I came back to New York to that space. And in that state of severe depression and just trauma uh, and re-traumatization because my mother, my birth mother had been killed in a car accident when I was four. And so it was like, I losing her all over again. Exactly. The fact that I'm this, you know, I'm in my situation and it's been rough. It's been really, really, really rough. And I have been at points of, financial destitution and depression and even suicide at to an extent that I have not been at since I was a freshman in college, right? That is unacceptable. And it's just, and it doesn't have to be this way. And yeah. part of my, you know, part of my wanting to stay in publishing, because a lot of us these days and for the last couple of years have had a lot of sort of crisis of crises of faith and conscience being like, can I even you know, is it even worth it to stay? You know, if these people are going, if these people are at the top, like you were saying a minute ago, are always going to be there. You know, we, we kind of joke, but it is kind of real of like, this this isn't, this isn't an industry where people retire. This is an industry where people work until they die at their desks. Mm -hmm. And the people who do, there's a reason publishing looks the way that it does, which is namely like me, very white, brown hair, (laughs) <laughs> like women um and it's because and and also you know men at the top the fact that we- the fact that women make publishing run but men like are the pretty much years. all of the rewards yeah. i don't like hmm, yeah. interesting so they get the bonuses mm-hmm. uh go figure so but it's like but there's a reason publishing looks the way that it does and it's because the people who can afford to play by publishing's rules come from certain backgrounds and come from certain 
you know, and of course financial they keep, privilege. Yeah, yeah, of course they want to keep it established that way. Mm-hmm. It's against their best interest, right? Because no and, one's going to ruffle feathers about it. No one's going to exactly. No one's going to look around and be like, "There's no, there's a, there's no problem with this." Yeah, like exactly. What's yeah. the problem? Exactly. But that's why. That's why it's so important. This the strike that's happening now with the HarperCollins yes. workers is important because it recognizes that okay we've done what we could we've played by the rules we've put in our time mm-hmm. but things are not going to change because they've decided and you know, the leadership decided that it's not in their best interest to change so it's time to show them that it actually is in their best yeah. interest to change yeah because the the people who do run the company or keep the company running are the workers the thing is when somebody hears the word strike mm-hmm. and union you know they think this come came out spontaneously like people just got angry one afternoon and then decided to demonstrate but right. i want to disabuse them of that mm-hmm. notion because there is a longer backstory to this and i want them to hear it so um if you could give us a summary of what exactly happened that led to the yes. strike so the the long and short of it is so as you were saying, a strike is not a spur of the moment decision. A strike is literally the last resort. It is the last available option to the workers. Up to that point, we are doing our damnedest. Our stewards, our incredible union stewards at HarperCollins work to the bone to try to get us a contract with management. They are exceptional people. And I I just, I, they blow me away every single day. And so back, so what happened is uh, our contract expired uh, in December of 2021. Uh, Usually it's, I think, yeah, 2021. And right before it expired, they, they started negotiations with management, which is standard. And, you know, it's the kind of thing where you start out with a bunch of proposals they get winnowed down bit by bit, and then you eventually sort of reach a compromise that actually benefits the union, but also doesn't upset management too much. And um, so we, until, what was it, April, uh, the company can, agreed to continue to extend the previous contract to sort of keep providing the, the coverage uh, and the protections while we were in negotiations but as of but as of that last uh, that one negotiation in April, they decided that they didn't want to do that anymore. So that already puts us in a position of, oh, like <laughs> like if we don't they have basically con- yeah right if we don't have a contract we as a union we are very vulnerable. We're vulnerable to all manner of things that other companies can just sort of do as they please. And having yeah. a union and having a contract helps prevent those things. Helps prevent the bad things from happening to the people who are, you know, to the workers. We then circulated a petition uh, to the industry, really, uh, basically saying like, that's, you know, then if that's the case, then you need to come back to the negotiating table and help settle on a new contract. Uh, That petition garnered about 2000 signatures, maybe a little over 2000 signatures, including some big name authors at HarperCollins agents, booksellers, authors, other authors, um, you know, book people in general, but also people outside of the industry who are just like, you know, I'm a reader. I care about this stuff. You know, I want the people who make my books to be fairly compensated. And so we returned that petition to them. 
and uh, that received essentially no response, if memory serves. Um, it was, you know, it was to encourage the management to return to the negotiating table. And that didn't happen. Yeah. So we went on strike for a one day strike on July 20th. It was, I cannot stress to you how hot it was that day. I think it was actually the hottest uh, yeah. day of the summer. And we went on strike and we were outside under the hot sun all day, all day from like 830 to 530. We managed to bring them back to the negotiating table a few times after that one day strike. But uh, there and there was some progress made, it sounds like, according to the stewards uh, that I spoke to. But essentially it, they stalled again very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. They basically refused to budge on our top three priorities and, you know, a few, a few sessions of that. And it just becomes clear that it's just like, we are not. It's a deadlock. Exactly. And, and this yeah. was also after the stewards also provided, you know, essentially a package that presented a very clear pathway to settlement that mm -hmm. would yeah. make everybody happy, maybe not thrilled, but happy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the union especially, and would ostensibly ruffle the fewest amount of feathers at uh, on management's end. And they still said no. And so that was what set off the chain of events that then led to the strike. And that chain of events being one, conver you know, you have a lot of conversation, you hold multiple votes before you go, before you ever even decide to go on strike. Yes, because, because you're talking about, risk. yeah, it's you're talking about people's livelihoods. Yep. You're talking about possible professional repercussions. Mm -hmm. It is not, people don't go on strike very lightly. You know, yeah. they, do, they don't take, the, it's not like a spur of the moment because there's a lot hinging on it. So tell me, what are the conditions of the HarperCollins workers? What mm -hmm. do what the workers want? The top three uh, priorities for us as a union that the stewards have been pressing in these contract negotiations for a whole year is is three things, which is higher entry level salaries, uh, starting at fifty thousand is the floor. So. I go by in, when when people ask like you know so how much should you be getting paid you know how much should someone be making? Uh, the Economic Policy Institute is a fantastic resource and I use it constantly. And you can literally calculate uh, the cost of living. And for example, a single person in New York City in the New York City metropolitan area in 2022. The last time I checked, I want to say the number that they calculated was about 58,000, a little over 58,000. We can fact check this. Exactly. Okay, like you can fact check yeah. me on that. Uh, but it's yeah. around, last I checked, it was around 58,000. After taxes, yeah. after taxes, you're looking at a 75, around a $75,000 salary. So, okay. We talked about the 50,000, <laughs> $50, $50,000. Yeah. What are the other um, the, uh, So, yes. So the other demands priorities are, uh, stronger union protections. We would love to uh, have a closed shop at HarperCollins, which essentially means uh, that if you are eligible to be in the union, i.e. you do not have a direct report uh, and you're not, a, you know, basically you're not a manager, you qualify mm -hmm. to be in the union, that when you start at HarperCollins, you are automatically enrolled yes. in the union, that you are yes. automatically protected. 
Yes, uh, exactly. Because and it doesn't give them the opportunity to uh when you're interviewing, for example, to say, well, you don't have to join the union officially. You still get the benefits, but you don't have to pay dues or anything mm-hmm. like that, which is classic union busting. So the third thing too that we want to mention in terms oh, yes, of the, right. the demands that we have at this point in our contract are we want to codify in a very meaningful way uh, language around diversity, equity, and inclusion so that Mm -hmm. the company cannot just, uh, you know, basically give lip service saying, well, of course we value diverse voices. We want diverse talent. We want to hire widely and broadly and across all these, you know, all these differences and things like that. But it's, that makes it so, so easy for them to do none of those things. Yeah. Like and a black them, box is not enough. Exactly. Putting and, up and, a black box is not enough. Right. And for them to then sit back and go, well, we tried everything we could. It's like, well, did you? Because no. there's nothing, there's nothing contractually obligating you to do any of those things. That's right. So our, our demand is that, no, there has to be language in place mm-hmm. that says, you know, if you are going to hire someone, you have to do X, Y, and Z before you hire, you know, anyone basically yeah, in terms and, of like interviewing, is, interviewing exactly. diversely and, and doing things in a way where it's actually inclusive and not exactly. just doing the bare minimum or nothing at all. And I want to, and I want to stress too, it's not, you know, the reason we're on strike isn't just because they won't agree to the financial demand that we're making the DEI language, you know, the codified language in the contract, they've pushed against that too, basically mm-hmm. saying like, you know, well, we already do that again, like kind of paying, paying lip service, but not actually ever committing mm-hmm. to this work. I truly believe that a better publishing industry, a better publishing ecosystem, a better, you know, I'm an optimist to a fault, but I truly believe that it is all possible. And it doesn't, I honestly don't think it will require even that much change really uh in the short term at least if it can just start with people being paid a livable wage so that people can can live their lives bring their insights bring all of their insights and their experiences and their knowledge and their culture and religion and everything everything about themselves to bear on this work because I cannot think, and this is one of the reasons why I've stayed in publishing as long as I have, despite everything that I've been through, is that I know how much of ourselves goes into every single book that gets published. And I know how much of an author goes into every single one of their books. And there's nothing to me, there's, there's no more beautiful alchemy than that. And I want to see more of it. And I want to see it reflect the world that we actually live in. And I want this industry to reflect that too. And I think, and I hope that that will happen. And because I, you know, I know I'm committed to making it so. Thank you very much for your time. Um, This has been really informative um, and not just informative, but inspiring. Um, All of the questions have been answered that I know a lot of our listeners and readers also wanted to know. And I wish you and the HarperCollins workers all the best and that your demands um, should be resolved. Hopefully they, they'll be resolved soon. Thank you so much, Neva. Truly, like you've built an incredible community here. I'm so happy to play a small part in this, you know, in this small way, get the message out there about the strike. Hopefully, yes, dispel some misconceptions about why we're out there and about 
unions and strikes in general that, you know, I just want everyone to, I just want everyone to know that this is very much a community effort. This is not, this is not the action of a few begrudging individuals. This is a collective. This is a community of people who care about this work and who care about authors and writing and stories. And just, we just want to do that work and do it in a way that is, you know, beneficial to us as well as to the rest of the world. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. Please visit TalkingWriting.com to read our current issue and for much more about the creative life. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at TalkingWriting.com.